I'm going to be talking this afternoon, the series is titled, It's Time Someone Finally Told You the Truth About. Remember, that's kind of tongue-in-cheek. I'm not presenting myself as the expert on everything. I'll introduce a little bit more about that in a minute. But this afternoon is the human nature of Christ. And uh, one of the reasons I shared, if you weren't here last night, there are certain topics that you're almost not even allowed to discuss in Adventist circles anymore. And that bothers me. I don't like an atmosphere where you can't investigate. I don't like an atmosphere where you can't discuss. Now, somebody had told me earlier this afternoon, uh, they were thinking about being here, and they said, you know, I'm just not sure. I figure everybody's pretty much got their mind made up on this subject anyway. Now, I want to tell you something. You better not have your mind made up on this subject. I don't have my mind made up on this subject from this standpoint. When we're talking about the nature of Christ, we're talking about the nature of God. When you talk about the nature of God, you don't understand it yet. And I don't understand it yet. We're told it's going to be the science and song of redeemed through eternal ages. Which means there's always more to what? Learn. So I hope you don't have a mindset that you're not going to learn anything more. Amen. Now our purpose here this afternoon is not for debate, as I mentioned earlier, but more for edification. And I want to touch on a little bit of what we looked at last night before I jump into this particular topic. Before I do that, I'm going to kneel and ask God to bless our time together. So I'm going to invite you to bow your heads with me at this time. Heavenly Father, Father, once again, we just thank you for the privilege we have of being here in your presence on your holy Sabbath day. Lord, if we've ever needed the Holy Spirit in human history, Lord, it's now. And as we come together and we're studying these subjects together today, we need your spirit, the spirit of truth, to lead us into truth, to give us understanding, to humble our hearts, open our ears. Pray, I pray, Lord, that you would touch my lips and that the words I speak would give glory and honor to your name. And Lord, I ask and pray all of this in the name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen. Now, I want to just briefly, okay, it's up there now. When we talk about the human nature of Christ, I'm going to share a number of quotes here, and I had wanted to have slides for them. I didn't, and so what I did is I gave you a URL. If you happen to have a smartphone, you can pull up the notes I'm going to be following right there, so at least you have some reference point, and you can look at it later on, because I'm not going to read my notes, and I'm not probably going to touch on everything in my notes today. This is not intended, incidentally, to be an exhaustive study on the nature of Christ in the time period that we have but it will be food for, for thought for you and hopefully, like I said, a little bit of uh, encouragement and direction. And here's what I mean by that. Last night, we talked about the truth about the last generation. And I told you there were two things I was... Um, reason well, actually, I told you there was one thing I was positively certain about and one thing I was reasonably sure about. The thing I was positively certain about is there's going to be a last generation. Amen? Amen. And, and the point that I was reasonably certain about is that some of us are going to be part of it. Okay? Uh, so that makes it important for us to understand. Now, the reason I decided to share what I did, as I, sh as I said last night, is this, when you talk about, some of you are aware of this, maybe some of you aren't, but when you talk about a last generation, it's a subject that is very marginalized in the church today. It's, it's criticized and ridiculed like you would believe such a thing, and it's so non-grace, non-gospel-centered. This is the kind of talk that you get. But as Seventh-day Adventists, we have to remember something, and it's, it's rooted in the concept of the sanctuary. What the sanctuary, the heavenly sanctuary, teaches us 
is that Jesus is doing a work. Now, this isn't just taught in the sanctuary, of course, but when we look at the salvation picture, the work Jesus is doing is putting away sin. Right? He's a savior from sin. He's going to do away with sin. Okay, so he's in the heavenly sanctuary, and from the biblical vantage point, He's going to finish his work in the sanctuary, i.e. putting away sin. When he completes that, he's going to put off the priestly garments. He's going to put on the garments of vengeance. He's going to come back, not as a priest, but as a king and receive his people. He's not going to do that until his work in the sanctuary is finished, i.e. sin is put away. It would make sense for the high priest to leave the sanctuary when sin wasn't put away. Amen? And so it's from that standpoint that we have a clear understanding. Now, you're not going to get this from the evangelical churches, and this is our problem. We go to the evangelicals, and they ridicule us because they don't understand this framework. They come from a whole different framework. And instead of us being bold and saying, listen, we have a high priest who can save to the uttermost, we cower and say, well, yeah, I guess it was all done at the cross. But what that does for you and me on a practical, spiritual level is it totally incapacitates our Christian experience. Because the fact of the matter is, we are not secured for heaven yet. You understand what I mean by that? A lot of people want to go to heaven, but you've got to be be fitted for heaven. Now that's a work that Christ is doing, but he doesn't do it apart from you and me. Nobody's going to be forced to go to heaven. That's called universalism. We don't believe that. We believe that everybody has a choice. How often do we exercise those choices? It's not a one-time thing. It's not like, yeah, I exercise. I've mentioned this this morning. Oh, I exercised that choice 20 years ago. I accepted Christ. No, that has to be exercised every day. Choose you this day whom you will serve. Correct? And so as we looked at the topic last night, the reason I shared it is that I believe... Let me say one other thing. When you look at the prophetic end time scenario, the issue at the end of time, the final testing issue, the mark of the beast, seal of God issue, is a character issue. The marks are in the forehead. Okay? The mark of the beast is in the forehead or in the hand. The seal of God is only in the forehead. When you look at Revelation chapter 14, it says that the name of God is in the forehead as well. Now, we talked about this. I believe we talked about this a little bit. The name of God is synonymous with the glory of God and the character of God. The final test, when we talk about the the, the Sabbath being the test, that's the outward test, but it's a test of character. Okay, Much like when we look at the Apostle Peter, who with all his heart promised Jesus he would not deny him. You remember that? With all his heart, I believe that, that Peter believed it with all his heart. In fact, he read it in Desire of Ages. The problem is that Peter didn't know himself, and he had not developed the kind of character that could withstand that kind of test. Now, you're going to find this throughout Scripture. You don't find it just in the book of Revelation. You go to the parable of the wedding garment. What's that about? What's the wedding garment about? I'll tell you in short, and you can go back and study it. Here's a feast. The king throws a feast. That king is God the Father. He throws a feast and he sends everybody who's, going to, who's invited a wedding garment and they're supposed to put it on when they come to the wedding feast. Only when the time comes for the feast to come, and incidentally the feast is salvation, and it's the invitation of salvation. The invitation is given to everybody. I know I'm talking quickly here, so I make sure you're with me on that. Do you understand that? How many of you read the parable of the wedding garment? Okay, invitation is given all. They come to that wedding garment, or they come to that feast rather. And a man is not wearing the wedding garment. When the king approaches the man, or the master of the house, the feast, approaches the man and says, where's the wedding garment? You remember what the man says to him? 
says nothing. He's not like, what do you mean, wedding garment? I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. You know why he says, doesn't say that? Because he knows what he's talking about. What did that wedding garment represent in that feast? That was the fitness to be there. That was the righteousness of Christ that he was supposed to have, but he didn't have. Here's a person, don't miss this, who has in his mind accepted the invitation to salvation. He received a garment that he should have put on, but his Christian friends, his good Adventist friends, says, oh, those guys are legalists that say you've got to be wearing that garment at the wedding feast. Don't worry about it. You don't need it. And so confidently he goes in there thinking he has every right until the king comes and he examines him and he says, you're not fit. That's the investigative judgment. It's a test of character at the end of time. And the fact is, you can listen to all kinds of theology in the church today. It makes you feel real good now. But when the test comes, you might not feel so good anymore. We're heading, we are, I believe, living in the last generation. And that test is a test of character. And character is not built at the end of time. And it's not built in a moment. It's built every day. But it's not built by people who are convinced in their mind that it's not important what choices we make today because we're just saved by grace. We are saved by grace. And the Bible says, Paul says, let us have grace that we may serve God acceptably. Grace is to enable us to serve God, not excuse us from serving God. Are you following that? So this morning when we talked about the invisible gorilla in the the perspective change that comes with conversion. I mentioned to you that there are a lot, there are a lot of people that, that, as long as I've been in the church, that share about the, what do I want to say, the, 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 the long years of, of Adventist misery they went through because the church was so legalistic and they required this, that, and the other. And when I share that, people say, yeah, I know. Hey, look, I experienced that. And my point this morning, I'm going to clarify. I was, I was careful this morning, and I want to be careful now, but I want to flesh this out just a little bit more. The point that I was making this morning, and this is not a universal statement, so this doesn't apply across the board to everybody. Let me, refer, let, me, let me clarify this way. I'm sure that there are people who grew up in the Adventist church that had a, a, a difficult upbringing, a bad experience, whatever, as in any church. But I also have encountered numerous people whose memory of their upbringing and the legalism of the church is from a carnal, unconverted standpoint. Not that they're carnal, but they don't think about the fact, for example, I can think back when I was a kid and I can think, man, I hated being in church. I hated going to church and I had to sit there and they da 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 But I've got to stop to think to myself, well, wait a minute, was I converted then? Well, if I wasn't converted, then how else would I look at it? How does an unconverted person think about spiritual things? And so what we do in the church today is we do a value genesis study. And we're going to find out all the, why did all the young people leave the Seventh-day Adventist church? And we go ask a bunch of unconverted people why they left and what would it take to bring them back. And they say, you need to jazz things up and make it more worldly because that's where they're coming from. And we say, oh, okay. You hear what I'm saying? We don't stop to think that conversion changes your perspective. And so there are people who come to me very heartfelt, very sincere. They say, man, when I grew up in the church, it was so legalistic. Well, I won't question that there have been people in the church that are legalistic. But I think we all need to think to ourselves. Because I said, I, I think I mentioned this this morning. When I was converted and joined back in the church, there are a lot of things I could have brought up. That I, I'm growing up, this happened and this happened. But it was really irrelevant to me. What I realized was I was a sinner that I never admitted to. And that I needed the grace of Jesus. And you know what everybody else did? It was really irrelevant to me. I was going forward. 
I think as a people, we need to go forward. And I'm not, I, I, I said I was going to be careful this morning. I want to be careful now. I don't want to belittle anybody's hardships. But, folk, we can't live in the past. Jesus is coming. And it doesn't matter. You know, if you said, oh, there are people that were really legalistic in the church, who do you think planted them there? The devil did. I have people come to me. They say, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not going back to church anymore because thus and so. Who do you think put thus and so in the church? Well, the devil, why do you think he did it? To discourage me. So who's winning the game now? When you make that kind of choice. You hear what I'm saying? Time is short. And we need to think about our spiritual decisions. And when we talk here about the nature of Christ, the human nature of Christ, why the reason this is important is, is for the whole reason Jesus took the human nature. And we'll, this is what we're going to flesh out here. So I want to start... With just, first of all, I, I don't think I've ever given a sermon on the nature of Christ. I have touched on it before, so I kind of do this with fear and trepidation. I mean, part of it, I, 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 I wanted to avoid debate. Part of it, I think I shared a little bit last night, this is a concern of mine today, that for a long time I just didn't want to ruin my reputation. Right? What if this people, these people won't invite me here, I won't go here because I'll be marginalized and I'll be put in this group and they'll say, you're one of those. You know what, I don't care about that anymore. Uh, I don't. Uh, you get older and you get stubborn, I guess. I don't know what happens, but I, I do not. I, I would rather, I don't want to face the Lord and have to have said I've been unfaithful because I was afraid of what people were going to say or I wouldn't climb up the ladder or whatever else. Now, I don't have this all figured out, but I do want to give you history, and I think there are some things that... There are aspects of the nature of Christ that I think will be unclear and we'll be studying throughout eternity. But there are other aspects that I think are very clear that we act like they're not that clear. And so here we go. If you have the, the URL, you can pull that and you can look at the notes that I'm looking at here. If that's wrong, somebody tell me. If you happen to pull it up and it says something different than the human nature of Christ at the top, tell me. Oh no, it says faith and works because that's what we're going to look at. Okay, it's the, it's the right one. Now, I personally, first, when I first came into the church, I would say that I guess that what I, I, I first began to learn about the nature of Christ or the significance of the human nature of Christ through reading the, the writings of Wagner and Jones, just because that was a, a, a pretty prominent part of what they taught. Now, when we talk about the nature of Christ, what we're really talking about, I don't want to say that the, this belief is universal, but I'd say it's universal in the Adventist church. And, and there are always a few here or there, but universal in the Adventist church that Jesus took humanity. The question has always been, and the debate's always been about what kind of humanity did he take? And the two, there, well, there are three main views. The first is that he took the humanity of Adam before Adam sinned. So it's the pre-fall nature or the prelapsarian is the theological term. The other viewpoint on the opposite end of the spectrum is that he took the nature of Adam after the fall, which would be the post-fall, the post-lapsarian viewpoint. And then there's a middle view that says, well, he took something in between the two. And anytime you get in between, you can have a number of flavors, like Baskin-Robbins. You've just got a lot of, you can have a lot of shades in there. But the general idea of the hybrid nature the, the, between the two is, says that Jesus took human weaknesses of the nature like he got hungry and tired without the sinful urges of the nature. 
Now, I had encountered in my experience pastors, respected pastors, who would take the post-fall viewpoint, Adam, or pre-fall viewpoint. They would say, Jesus took the nature of Adam before the fall. Now, I always had a challenge with that, and here was what my challenge was. I'm a firm believer in the spirit of prophecy. Okay, now let me tell you what I mean by that. In fact, I thought, I don't know if I've ever done my spirit of prophecy series out here, and it probably wouldn't hurt done it in the church in so many places because there are a lot of people today, there's a lot of confusion about the Adventist viewpoint on the spirit of prophecy, the biblical standing of the gift of prophecy. What I mean by that is a lot of Adventists don't take the spirit of prophecy writings as authoritative. Okay? Authoritative simply means this. You recognize that the person is a prophet and because the person is a prophet, you understand that God sends prophets to tell you what you couldn't see otherwise. So, for example, Ellen White wrote of King Saul. Samuel the prophet reproved Saul. Ellen White says these words in the book, uh, Patriarchs and Prophets. Because Saul accepted Samuel as a prophet, he should have received Samuel's reproof, even though he didn't see it that way. Do you hear what I just said? In other words, you can't be like, well, Ellen White said this, but I just don't see it that way. Of course you don't see it that way. That's why God sent a prophet to tell you. (laughs) Right? I mean, that's the whole purpose of a prophet is the prophet was a seer. They saw the way God saw, and so they would reveal things that we wouldn't see otherwise. And Ellen White repeatedly uses the terms sinful nature and fallen nature when talking about the nature of Christ. So I can't be like, well, yeah, he took the nature before the fall because she uses different language. I'm going to show you that in, in just a little bit. And so for me, it was, it, it, in my mind, it was fairly clear that Jesus came and took the same fallen humanity I had, with one exception, he, was, he, he wasn't carnal. He didn't need to be converted and we'll, talk, we'll flesh that out as we go. And so Jesus came into my humanity and your humanity, and by his divinity overpowered, and I should maybe even clarify this, because the Bible makes it clear that Jesus laid aside his divinity, but by his Father's divinity, trusting in his Father, the same way that you and I have to trust in the Father, he overpowered the fallen nature and never sinned even in a thought. Now, when I, when I, that's, that's how I begin to understand it. And that was exciting to me. To this day, it's exciting to me. You know why? Because it told me that I can overcome. It told me that I don't have to be a slave to sin. Now, I'm going to tell you something very frankly. That is good news to a person who sees himself or herself as a sinner. But if you think you're a pretty good person, that's not good news at all. I, I, one of the most astounding quotes I've found in, in the past year or two now it may have been, uh, was one by the comedian uh, Robin Williams. And I may have shared this. Some of you may have heard this before. But how many of you know the name? Robin Williams. The guy hanged himself, okay? Um, I don't know how long it's been now. I want to say about a year ago, maybe. Robin Williams was an alcoholic. He fought alcoholism much of his life. He had two marriages fold because of his alcoholism. In an MSNBC interview where they were talking to him about his alcoholism, he said, you know, he said, you do things that disgust you and they're shameful, right? He's talking about when he fell into his habit. And he didn't want to, but he just fell into it. It overpowered him. It was an addiction. He said, you do things you don't want to and it's disgusting and it's shameful. And then he said this. He says, people can say, I forgive you, 
And that's great, but it's not the same as overcoming it. Now, I want you to understand that the world that we're supposed to preach the three angels' message to, they're looking for overcoming. Hey, don't worry. God loves you. He winks at that sin. You just keep on living in it. You don't understand. I can't stand living in this sin. You understand? That's what's happening. And when a person can't stand being in that place where the flesh overpowers the will, they long for deliverance. And the Bible says, I thank God through Jesus Christ my Lord. He brings deliverance. He brings deliverance. And that's what we're talking about here. Um, I have a couple statements I'm going to jump over. Ellen White makes some clear statements. First of all, that this will be the, I've mentioned this, that this is going to be our study throughout eternity. I'm just trying to understand because we're talking about the nature of God. Paul says the same thing, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. Without controversy, that is without argument, great is the mystery of godliness. It's a great mystery. There's no controversy on it. We're going to be studying it throughout eternity. So I'm not going to be like, hey, I got it all figured out here. But I guess I will read this second quote. Um, because what happens is, I'm going to read a, uh, some, some history first, and then some, we're going to go into some scripture. What happens is, there's been enough discussion on this that's kind of negative, like, it's like, well, we're going to study forever, and we can't quite figure it all out, that there have been many leaders in the church that are like, yeah, you know, let, let's not even go there. So I want, to, I want to read this statement from Ellen White, from the pen of Ellen White. Selected Messages, Volume 1, page 244. She says this, The humanity of the Son of God is everything to us. It is the golden chain that binds our souls to Christ. I'm on the top of page two. If you've just come in, that URL up there, if you have a smartphone, you can pull these notes up and follow along. I'd hoped to have slides and I just didn't have them ready. I apologize for that. The humanity of the Son of God is everything to us. It is the golden chain that binds our souls to Christ and through Christ to God. This is to be our study. Christ was a real man. He gave proof of his humility in becoming a man, yet he was God in the flesh. When we approach this subject, we would do well to heed the words spoken by Christ to Moses at the burning bush. Put off thy shoes from off thy feet, for the place whereon you standest is holy ground. Now some people go there and like, yeah, there it is, let's just not even... Hold on, we're not done yet. We should come to this study with the humility of a learner with a contrite heart, and the study of the incarnation of Christ is a what? Anybody following? A fruitful field which will repay the searcher who digs deep for hidden truth. Does that sound like we shouldn't study it or we should? Absolutely should. We should just study it nicely. Right? Should be kind to one another. Now some history. Just briefly, I mentioned to you already. These are some things that are just thoughts of mine as I've reviewed over this. And I hear discussion on the subject. Both Jones, E.J. E. Wagner and A.T. Jones who presented the message of justification by faith at the 1888 General Conference. I don't know how familiar you are with that history. I mentioned to you this morning a book called The Return of the Latter Rain by Ron Duffield, excellent historical source. Now, if you read just a handful of Ellen White's statements regarding that message, she basically says that the message of righteousness that Wagner and Jones presented was the clearest, brightest it has ever shined on this earth. Okay? We've got Adventists today, they're like, let's go back to Luther. Let's talk about Luther, because he understood. Luther didn't understand righteousness by faith half as much as Wagner and Jones did. We've had Adventists like Desmond Ford who went out, because he went back to Luther, and he would trash Wagner and Jones and put the thing upside down. No, Wagner and Jones had the clearer understanding. Luther, and, and incidentally, I should say this, Luther's credited for a lot of false 
views of justification that he didn't hold. And time doesn't permit me to go into that. I keep wanting to dive into something else. But both Wagner and Jones held the view that Christ took man's fallen nature, incidentally, with the church as a whole. This was not a debated subject in 1888. And when Wagner and Jones presented it, nobody was arguing that. They were arguing the Long Galatians. Just be clear on that. At that point in time, it was widely accepted that he took the fallen nature but never sinned. Okay? Now, Ellen White, in reference to the message of Jones and Wagner, wrote in May of 1895, so this is nearly seven years after Minneapolis, so I'm sharing this because some people will say, oh, well, Wagner and Jones, they came, they preached, 1888 message, Minneapolis conference, we never had notes of it. Nobody took notes, we don't know what they said, and after that, they went downhill in their theology, so we never will know. Yeah, that makes sense. God sends a message to his people, and then there's no way to find out what it was. Well, that's far from the truth. That's one of those revisions of history. Nearly seven years after Minneapolis, this is what she says, the Lord in his great mercy sent a most precious message to his people through elders Wagner and Jones. This message was to bring more prominently before the world the uplifted Savior and invited the people to receive the righteousness of Christ, which is made manifest in obedience to all the commandments of God. Many had lost sight of Jesus they needed to have their eyes directed to his divine person, his merits, and his changeless love for the human family. Now, I might want to just interject this here. Even when people talk about Wagner and Jones, when people today talk about 1888, there's usually a downplaying of the law. But you'll notice that when Ellen White talks about this message, what does she say? She says, <clears throat> thank you, Arden. She says, it invited the people to receive the righteousness of Christ, which is made manifest in obedience to all the commandments. In other words, the two are blended. So she doesn't down-talk the law, but then she says the people needed their eyes directed to what? Christ, right? And I've mentioned it's along lines of what we talked about this morning. The problem is not with the law, except for if we're looking at the law as something that we have to achieve in our own strength. And so what does she say? The people needed their eyes directed to Christ. When our eyes are directed to Christ, we see his divine person, we see his power, and we have faith in that power. It changes how we relate to the law of God. Okay? Anyway, this is how she describes. Now, she goes on to talk about this message and says, I'm jumping ahead a little bit. Um, All power is given into his hands that he may dispense rich gifts unto men, imparting the priceless gift of his own righteousness to the helpless human agent. This is the message that God commanded to be given to the world. It is the third angel's message, which is to be proclaimed with a loud voice and attended with the outpouring of his spirit in a large measure. Now, <clears throat> simply put, the message of Wagner and Jones lifted up Christ, okay, and the righteousness of Christ. Now, you've got to pause with me and ask this question. How could it be that the clearest message, and I mean, I could give you statement after statement, Ellen White followed uh, around with Wagner and Jones to camp meetings, 1888, 1889, 1890, 1891, general conference sessions. Jones spoke 24 sermons in 1893 at the general conference session, 26 sermons in 1895 at the general conference session. I skipped 1894, uh, or uh, there wasn't an 1894. 1901, Wagner and Jones were prominent speakers. So this wasn't just, oh, it happened in 1888. Now, the point that I make is this. How could someone or some, some, some individuals who Ellen White says God entrusted with a message, the clearest message that we have yet had on the 
righteousness of Christ be wrong in their Christology. Right? Like, oh, we're mixed up as to what Christ's nature was, but we've got the clearest idea that we've ever had on what the gospel is of the righteousness of Christ. Does that make sense? Really doesn't make sense. Now, you can argue it, but it just doesn't make sense. We could talk all day long about it, but it doesn't make sense. It wouldn't make sense that they would have that clear, because if their Christology was wrong, wouldn't you think it would affect their understanding of the gospel? Yes or no? And when I say Christology, I mean the human nature of Christ. Now, it was at this time period that a letter was written. This letter did not surface until the 1950s in the Seventh-day Adventist Church. In fact, it was 1955, the letter written to an evangelist, an Adventist evangelist named L.H. Baker, referred to as the Baker Letter. In fact, Manuscript Release, uh, Volume 19. No, 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 not, not Volume 19. Manuscript Release, Volume 13, pages 18, 19, I, I have here in the notes. The Baker Letter. In the Baker Letter, Ellen White gave strong cautions about how the nature of Christ was to be treated in public presentation. I don't know if I'm going to read the whole thing, but I'll read part because this is key. In fact, this, this came at a time in our church where the viewpoint that was held throughout our history and held <clears throat> by other pioneers, including Wagner and Jones, this is when it began to shift more to the belief in a nature that was that Christ took the nature of Adam before the fall instead of after. A lot of that was based on the Baker letter. Now, I'm, just, I'm going to start out, if you have it, it's on page 3. It's in the blue. It says, be careful, exceedingly careful, as to how you dwell upon the human nature of Christ. Do not set him before the people as a man with the propensities of sin. He is the second Adam. The first Adam was created a pure, sinless being without a taint of sin upon him. He was in the image of God. He could fall and did fall through transgressing. Because of his sin, his posterity was born with inherent propensities of disobedience. But Jesus Christ was the only begotten Son of God. He took upon himself human nature and was tempted in all points as human nature is tempted. He could have sinned. He could have fallen. But not for one moment was there in him an evil propensity. Brother Baker, avoid every question in relation to the humanity of Christ which is liable to be misunderstood. Truth lies close to the track of presumption. In treating upon the humanity of Christ, you need to guard strenuously every assertion, lest your words be taken to mean more than they imply, and thus you lose or dim the clear perceptions of his humanity as combined with divinity. Never in any way leave the slightest impression upon human minds that a taint of or inclination to corruption rested upon Christ, or that he in any way yielded to corruption, that would be sin. He was tempted in all points like as man is tempted, yet he is called that holy thing. It is a mystery that is left unexplained to mortals that Christ could be tempted in all points like as we are, and yet be without sin. I'm going to read that again. I want to emphasize that. I want you to listen to that one very carefully. It is a mystery that is left unexplained to mortals that Christ could be tempted in all points like we, as we are, yet be, and yet be without sin. A mystery left unexplained is unexplained today. Okay? A lot of people say, oh, I don't understand. You know, I don't understand how Jesus could have taken. He had to take Adam's nature before the fall. Why do you say that? Because I don't understand how he could have taken it after. You don't have to understand. 
You understand that? We, we don't have to understand everything to believe the Bible. I don't have to be like, look, God, I know, I know the Word says this. I know the Word says I can be born again, but I don't see how I can be born again. I just don't understand. Hey, go look at the serpent on the pole, right? And when you look, you live. But Lord, I don't understand how looking at that serpent on a pole is going to change me. It doesn't matter if you understand. You look, you live. You don't look, you die. You understand what I'm saying? Don't let your viewpoint on Christ's human nature be based on your inability to understand how it can work that way. That would just simply be the point. Now she tells, there's a lot of cautions here too. Um, Elder Baker, she says, the incarnation of Christ has ever been and ever will remain a mystery. That which is revealed is for us and for our children, but let every human being be warned from the ground of making Christ altogether human, such a one as ourselves, for it cannot be. Now here's a good chunk of the Baker letter. And, and from this, people said, hey, you know, Ellen White counsel Baker, and, and uh, he's not to make him like, so, you know, Baker must have been, and then assumptions come out. And I'll tell you why I know assumptions come out. Because I, I read the Baker letter, I said, you know, I want some background on this. I called the Ellen White estate, called one of my friends there, I said, tell me what we know about Baker. What did he teach, right? What is she addressing here? I want to know what specifically he was teaching. What did she address? We don't know. Do you have any transcript? No. Do we have any idea what he was specifically teaching? No. Now that in and of itself might not be that big a deal. Might not ring any bells for you, but let me share this with you. The Baker letter was written in 1895. February of 1895. No, 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 I'm sorry. I don't know when in 1895. We don't have a date. It's letter number, I don't know what, I, I thought I had it here. But the Baker letter was written in 1895. Now, in February of 1895, A.T. Jones stood before the General Conference of Seventh-day Adventists assembled. He preached 26 sermons, at least five of which, if not more, were on the nature of Christ. Okay, now think about it. A prominent Adventist evangelist speaking at the general conference session to all the brethren assembled. Now, if Ellen White was going to write a letter to reprove and correct somebody because of their error, who would it make more sense to write the letter to? The guy speaking to the general conference session or the guy nobody even knew what he was speaking about? Do you hear what I'm saying? Do I need to go over that again? Baker, we don't know what Baker was teaching. And yet Ellen White felt that she needed to correct that and write and give him counsel. That's okay. I'm okay with that. But I would think this, <clears throat> that if Jones was speaking and teaching the same kind of thing that Baker was when he taught about the nature of Christ, then I would think that he would be at least as deserving of a letter to correct his viewpoint. You hear what I'm saying? Now that's not conclusive. That's simply to say that it, it, it's, it's pretty strong circumstantial evidence that the nature that Jones taught, that Christ had, was not the same thing that Baker taught and not worthy of any kind of reproof from Ellen White, evidently. Now, another reason, even more clear that we would have to support that, is that there was a man in our denomination by the name of Prescott, W.W. W. Prescott, had been, he had a reconversion experience with the 1888 General Conference. 
He became a well-sought-after speaker and would go around and speak at camp meetings and what have you. And he picked up the same message that Wagner Jones was sharing. He taught the same thing on the nature of Christ. I'm going to quote to you a portion of a sermon he gave at the Armadale Camp Meeting in Melbourne, Australia in 1895. I'm quoting now. This is recorded in the Bible Echo of January 6th. I'm on page 4 if you're following the notes. He says, You see... So you see that what the scripture states very plainly is that Jesus Christ had exactly the same flesh we bear. Flesh of sin. Flesh in which we sin. Flesh, however, in which he did not sin. But he bore our sins in that flesh of sin. Do not set this point aside. No matter how you may have looked at it in the past, look at it now as it is in the word. And the more you look at it in that way, the more reason you will have to thank God that it is so. Now that's just a quote from one of the sermons he gave. That sermon was on October 31. Ellen White was present at the Armadale camp meeting. Ellen White wrote to S.N. Haskell of that camp meeting where where Haskell was teaching that 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 was from a sermon. The entire sermon was on the nature of Christ. It was called The Word Became Flesh. This is what Ellen White writes on November 6th. That sermon particularly was preached on October 31. He was preaching every night. November 6th, just seven days later, Ellen White writes a letter to S.N. Haskell. This is part of what she says. This is also on page four. It's in the blue about the middle of the page. We are at this time in our camp meeting having a feast of precious things. The word is presented in a most powerful manner. The Holy Spirit has been poured out upon Brother Prescott in a great measure. Brother Prescott has been bearing the burning words of truth such as I heard from some in 1844. The inspiration of the Spirit of God has been upon him. Unbelievers say, these are the words of God. I have never heard such things before. We have had the truth presented in clear lines. Brother Prescott has never had so much power in preaching the truth as he has had since coming to this meeting. The unbelievers sit with their eyes riveted on him in amazement as the truth comes forth from his lips, vitalized by the Spirit of God. When I consider the responsibility resting upon all who hear this heaven-sent message, I tremble at the word of the Lord. Who will receive the message sent to them? <laughs> Come on. So here's, pre- he's got a whole entire sermon she just comments on where he's telling that Christ came in the same flesh that we sin in, but he never sinned. And Ellen White says, I haven't heard words like this since 1844. The burning words of truth. He's never spoken with such power before. Now, how do you get that and say, yeah, but I think he was off on this thing? Again, you might say it's circumstantial, but it's pretty strong circumstantial evidence. And incidentally, a viewpoint that is Adventist, we'd held through Ellen White's whole lifetime. The denominational viewpoint never changed during Ellen White's lifetime. Ellen White herself, if you look at the bottom of page four, I'm going to read this first statement from Desire of Ages. It says, Ellen White comments here. She says, when Adam was assailed by the tempter. Now, this is in the temptation chapter of Desire of Ages. When Adam was assailed by the tempter, none of the effects of sin were upon him. He stood in the strength of perfect manhood, possessing the full vigor of mind and body. Speaking of Adam. Now, listen carefully. It was not thus with Jesus. Is that difficult language to understand? 
Okay, here's Adam, and here's Jesus. She comments on Adam, and then she uses these words. It was not thus. What does thus mean? This way, the same way. It was not thus with Jesus. So, okay, test, little quiz here. Was Jesus the same as Adam? No, (laughs) it was not thus. Now, what does she go on to say? It was not thus with Jesus when he entered the wilderness to cope with Satan. For 4,000 years, the race had been decreasing in physical strength, in mental power, and in moral worth. Physically, mentally, morally. And Christ took upon him the infirmities of degenerate humanity. I am hoping, I'm really hoping at some point that some of you right now are going, wait a minute, I've never heard that quote before. Because I, in my experience in the church, I hear people all the time going on about the nature of Christ, and this is one of the clearest paragraphs that you can read. Now, there are implications in this particular paragraph that somebody might run this way and somebody might run that way. You might be able to turn it this way or that way, but what you can't do is read this paragraph and say Jesus took the nature of Adam before the fall. Because it very clearly says the exact opposite of that. Unless, of course, your view in the spirit of prophecy is one of these modern views that she was just kind of like a good teacher kind of thing rather than a prophet of God. Do you understand what I'm saying? Only the, now I'm going to finish the statement. She says, Christ took upon himself the infirmities of degenerate humanity. Last sentence here. Only thus could he rescue man from the lowest depths of his degradation. Only in this way. Only coming all the way down where man was. Now I've got other statements there. I'm not going to read them from Desire of Ages. I'm just going to read. I've got in bold face that she says, taking upon himself our fallen nature. Uh, The next one, he took upon him our sinful nature. That he might associate with fallen humanity. The next statement, he took upon himself fallen, suffering human nature, degraded and defiled by sin. The next statement, uh, well, I'll make the next statement in a minute. So these are just a few of the places. This is where I had challenge when somebody would come and they'd say, well, I I, I think he took the the pre-fall nature. I couldn't reconcile it with these statements. I read these statements and they I can't say that (laughs) because she doesn't say that. You understand what I'm saying? I know I'm asking that question a lot, but you guys are quiet. I want to make sure you're you're following. Now, I want to read the last statement she makes there. He says, he was a mighty petitioner, not possessing the passions of our human fallen natures, but compassed with like infirmities, tempted in all points like as we are. And so we're going to talk about the passions here in a little bit. But that's some history on this. Um, And it's a sparse history, but it's just a little bit of a history. Now, I want to look at some... Concepts in Scripture. John 1.14, the Bible says the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Okay? The Scripture is very clear that Jesus became flesh. Now, here's, here's an important question. Now, first of all, we could ask this. We say, what flesh did he take? But the, there's another question that has to be answered first, and that is, why did he take flesh? Why did God take human flesh at all? Why did he take human flesh at all? Well, let's go to the book of Hebrews and find the answer in Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. Hope you have your Bibles here with you. We're moving out of the little history lesson here and moving into Scripture. And Paul tells us in Hebrews 2 why he took humanity. Hebrews 2 verse 14. 
It says, inasmuch then as the children have partaken of what? Flesh and blood. He himself likewise shared in the same that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those through, who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Verse 16. For indeed he does not, what? New King James says, give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Verse 17 starts with the word, at least in the New King James, therefore. Now, what does that word mean, therefore? It's a conclusive word. It means for this reason. Right? This, and therefore, this. For this reason or for these reasons. Okay? Therefore, in all things, he had to be made what? like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people for or because in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. Now, did you get from that what the apostle says is the reason he took human nature? Why did he take it? So that he might know how to aid those who are tempted. Did you pick that up? Verse 16 again. Notice, he, didn't de in, he indeed does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. What's Paul's point there? It's not going to, here's what Paul's saying. It's not going to make any sense for him to take the nature of somebody he didn't come to help. Because the only reason he took the nature was to aid those in the nature that he took. Now let's be real clear about something. Adam's nature was akin to the nature of angels. Adam didn't need a savior pre-fall. Now if God is going to stoop to an infinite level to take humanity at all, why stop short of taking the humanity of the people you came to save for the very reason you took the nature? You understand what I'm saying there? That's Paul's argument here. He didn't take the, 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 the nature of angels because he didn't come to help angels. He took the nature of man because he came to help man. That's why he took the nature. Now, a lot of times we talk about Christ taking our nature, and one of the reasons that's shared, and it's an accurate reason, is that Jesus came to demonstrate to us that he understands our weaknesses. And that's true. But it was more than just a demonstration. Jesus came in our nature to overcome in our nature, to show how you and I can overcome in our nature. Now, that's not, a good, that's, not a, that's not a positive thing for people who don't like this concept of overcoming. But that's why he took human nature. He came to aid us. He came to be a merciful and faithful high priest. Well, what makes him merciful and faithful? It says, for in that he himself has suffered being tempted. In verse 18, he is able to aid those who are tempted. In other words... Paul is implying here that Jesus faced the same temptations you, you face and the same temptations I face so that when we seek him as high priest and say, Lord, I need to overcome this, he says, let me tell you how it's done. I've been there. That's the, that's what, that's the implication of what Paul's writing here in the book of Hebrews. The word became flesh. And incidentally, I, I kind of passed over this, 
But in verse 14, notice the... And A.T. Jones brings this up when he covers this topic in 1895 in one of his sermons. Verse 14 says, Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise took part in the same. Why not just say he took the same? Look at it. Why, why didn't he just say, in the same way the children have partaken of flesh and blood, that's you and me, we have human nature. He took part of the same. Why he himself took part of the same? And he didn't, he didn't stop there either. Why he himself likewise? Why would you write that? Put yourself in his place. Why would you write it that way? Why do you, why do you repeat words? Clarity and emphasis, right? Why would he emphasize that? Because he wants the reader to be very clear that when he took humanity, he took our humanity. Because he came to help us. He's telling us to give us hope because we could say and we could be tempted to say and we do say in the church today. Well, you know, the thing is, Jesus, here's how it goes. Jesus took the nature of Adam before the fall in reality is. I mean, he, he, he kind of like, he overcame for us because he doesn't understand where, and he's up here and we're down here and so we can't really ever overcome like he overcame because he's, and it gets into this whole thing where it defeats the purpose of him taking humanity. He took humanity to give us hope that he overcame where we failed so that by his grace and the new birth, we can overcome. We don't have to be slaves to sin. What sense would it make for Jesus to take a nature that we didn't have? Ellen White makes an interesting statement, and this is the bottom of page 5, makes an interesting statement as she comments on the imagery of the ladder between heaven and earth, Jacob's ladder. You know Jacob's ladder was Christ. You're aware of that. In, in John chapter 1, at the end of John chapter 1, Jesus, Philip and Nathaniel meet with Jesus, and, and when Nathaniel says, Jesus says, I saw you under the fig tree praying, he's like, man, this is amazing. You're the Christ. He says, you think that's amazing? You're going to see greater things than these. You're going to see heaven open up and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of God. And what he saw was the picture of Jesus as that ladder that Jacob saw. Only Jesus, Jacob saw a ladder. Jesus said it was going to be the Son of God. He's the one that bridges heaven and earth. Ellen White picks up on this imagery and she makes this statement. Christ is the ladder that Jacob saw. The base resting on the earth and the topmost round reaching to the gate of heaven to the very threshold of glory. If that ladder had failed by a single step of reaching the earth, we should have been lost. Now think about what that means. You can figure it out. You can say, hey, I disagree. Look, you can go out of here and disagree with me. That's all fine. But you tell me what it means. You've got to wrestle with that. What did the prophet of God mean when she said, if that ladder had failed one single step of reaching the earth, we would have been lost? What could it mean? She says, but... Christ reaches us where we are. He took our nature and overcame that we through taking his nature might overcome. Amen. Hallelujah! Amen. And that, that, it's that kind of thing in my personal experience that to this day drives me. There's hope. People say, oh, that's discouraging. It means we've got to overcome. No, it's encouraging. We can overcome. Amen. Because that ladder did reach to the earth. Now, here's what I'm going to do here. Because I'm looking at the time and I'm thinking, I'm gonna, we're going we're gonna to take a break on this topic. Because I've got more to, to cover and I don't want to race through it. But I'm going to do one more thing before we break between 
we're going to take an intercession. And that is 1 John 4. I want you to go to 1 John 4. And this just hit me recently. This is, this is one of these texts I'm going to tell you as a pastor. If, if somebody here is a pastor, Bible worker, whatever, you've given Bible studies, you may be in the same place as me with 1 John chapter 4 where you have tiptoed around this verse and tried to make it basically say something that it didn't say or just didn't go with the obvious sounding meaning of it. You'll know what I mean in just a minute. 1 John chapter 4, verse 1. This is going to take a little bit of prophetic history here. So I'm hoping, I'm going to assume you know some Adventist prophetic history. 1 John chapter 4, verse 1 says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but what? Test the spirits or try the spirits, whether they are of God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. So here's a test. And we've always said this is one of the tests of a prophet or a test of the Spirit, right? By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of what? The Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. Here's a test of the spirit. Every spirit from God will confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. But those who don't confess that are not of God. It's the spirit of who? Antichrist. Now, what do you know about Catholic teaching and history? Okay, Seventh-day Adventists know from Bible prophecy, a study of Scripture, Daniel, Revelation, that the Antichrist power identified in Scripture is the Roman Catholic power. Right? You know what they teach about Christ's nature. I'll come back to that in just a moment. So as I've gone through this, and I know others have done the same, we're like, we read this, and it's like, well, it sounds pretty obvious. He who believes that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. What kind of flesh is there to come into? Yours and mine. No, 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 he didn't... You know, so this is what we do with that. We say, well, the test is this. You have to believe that Jesus came into humanity. He took a human body. You know, not, not a pre-fall versus post-fall, but he took a human body. That's what the test is, and you've got to believe that. Well, here's a newsflash for you. The system identified as the Antichrist believes that. Are you aware of that? But I'll tell you what they don't believe. They don't believe Jesus took the nature after the fall. And in fact, they so don't believe it that they've adopted a teaching called the Immaculate Conception. How many of you have heard of this? Now, how many of you think the Immaculate Conception is that Mary was born, uh, that Jesus was born by a virgin? That's what I used to think. Oh, Immaculate Conception, Jesus was born of a, a virgin. No, 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 no. Immaculate Conception doctrine teaches that in order for Jesus to be born sinless, Mary had to be sinless. How many of you are aware of that? In other words, the Catholic theology says this, if Jesus had been born, because of their doctrine of original sin, if Jesus had been born and Mary was a sinner, he would have been born with a sinful nature and would have been a sinner, and therefore Mary had to be sinless so Jesus could be sinless. If Jesus wasn't, so, so the, the idea, this is why we have in the Catholic system all the saints and, and mediators between us and God. We are so far from God and God is so offended by sin that there's this gap what we believe is Jesus bridged the gap. And he came down where we were. But in Catholic theology, no, no, no. Jesus 
could not have done that. Again, Jesus taking us, our nature where we fell would make him a sinner, and therefore Mary had to be sinless, immaculate conception. This is one of the, this is one of the key reasons Wagner and Jones made the emphatic uh, points they did on the nature of Christ to combat the immaculate conception doctrine. But if you take 1 John 4 simply to say this test is just that Jesus took human nature, well, guess what? The Antichrist power believes that just as well. But what they don't believe is Jesus took fallen nature. And I personally believe that's what the test is. Right? I mean, if not, you're left with some loose ends on that one. Now, what does it mean, the fallen nature? And this is where I want to take a break. I want to, t- I want to take a break. And when we come back, this is what we're going to do. We've talked a lot about this. And we've got history and a lot of quotes. So I want to kind of get, well, we're going to look at some more quotes. But I want to look at specifically what the practical side of this is. Why does it even matter? Okay, here we are. We're talking about, some of you are already, you're yawning into next week. You're like, oh, this is going to be, you know, who cares? And why is it a big deal? When we come back, we're talking about why it's a big deal. This is a, from a practical level, this is, why does Ellen might say the humanity of Christ is everything to us? What does that mean? How can it be everything to us? We're going to talk about that after we take a break. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to have prayer. And then we're going to have a little time to, whatever you need to do, stretch your legs, go do some jumping jacks or something. <laughs> but don't do too many. It's still the Sabbath. Um, <laughs> let's pray. Father in heaven, Father, the things we've been looking at are not uh, surface truths. And they're, they're part of what you have told us is the mystery of godliness, Lord. We don't want to delve into those areas that are the secret things that belong to you, but the things that are revealed are for us and our children. Father, we want to understand the practical implications of why it's so important, why the humanity of Christ is everything to us, or is to be everything to us. What does this mean for your people living in these last days? What does this mean for your people who want to reflect your image, for the world to see Jesus in us? This is our prayer, Father. Continue to guide us this afternoon. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.